Can you imagine swimming through water so icy cold that you lose feeling not only in your extremities, but in your face and mouth, making it near on impossible to know whether you are breathing air or water? Today's guest knows this feeling, and she kept on swimming anyway. Welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst life's challenges. I'm Ali Hill. And as a psychologist, it's my belief that everyone has a story to share, and today's story is pretty remarkable. Tara Diversi is an advanced sports dietitian. She has a fascination with human behaviour, having also studied psychology and education. Tara exclusively works with ultra-endurance adventure athletes and marathon swimmers, having supported over 60, yeah, that's right, 60 English Channel swimmers successfully complete their crossing. Tara has always shared a love for sport, from her surf life-saving days to marathon running to marathon swimming herself. Competing in many long, cold swims, including the English Channel, Rottnest Channel, Gibraltar Strait and Palm Beach to Manly Swim. She understands how mentally challenging sport can be and just how crucial optimal nutrition is to performing at your best. In this conversation, Tara shares one of her toughest challenges, which was becoming the first Australian female to swim the ice mile, one mile of swimming in water, five degrees or less. We also explore this challenge as well as many others that she hunts down in her life and in the business world. We explore how her drive to ask questions, to dive into curiosity, is a massive key behind the challenges she faces. Towards the end of our conversation, Tara shares a swimming metaphor that has stuck with me ever since we had this conversation. I know it will change how you look at uncertainty. This conversation will leave you asking even more questions. So please step into a new world of possibility with Tara Diversi. Tara, it is a delight to be sitting down with you today. Thank you. It's great to see you virtual zooms yeah it's great being in a, you know two different parts of the world but in similar situations for once it's great <laughs> yeah 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 it's nice to be able to have the time actually um you yeah. know things that are going on to to connect and, and dive into this conversation i want to start with last year you undertook a pretty extraordinary feat some would might even call it a bit crazy where you swam <laughs> a mile in ice water which is known as the ice mile my question to you is, how does a girl who grew up in the hot tropics of North Queensland become the first Australian female swimmer to do an ice mile? Um, it was a bit of a bizarre happening, actually. So in 2012, I did the English Channel. And one of my friends that I swam the English Channel with, Wyatt Song, who was the first Australian male to swim an ice mile, he, he and I really got on well. And one of the things that I do when I look at doing a challenge is I break it down and I have this like systematic approach. And he really liked that. And he liked that I seemed to do something relatively easy where other people, you know, labored and had that emotional labor over it. So in 2014, he decided to swim an ice mile and he said, you know, I really think you should do this. And 2004 between 2014 and 2019 in my mind was Wyatt is absolutely crazy and you will never ever swim an ice mile and then 2019 around December he posted this video of him swimming in Antarctica and I was like 
a hundred percent that like I literally, and I've got goosebumps now. And at the time I watched it on Facebook and I was like, a hundred percent, that is me. I'm going to swim in Antarctica. What do you think uh, flipped the switch for you? Well, I think the beauty of it switched, but at the time I was also reading a book about, um, and I, one of the things that I tend to have done in my life is I read a lot, but I don't just read, I apply the knowledge. And one of the books that I was reading was The Body Keeps Score. And it's around, you know, looking at trauma and looking at things that happened in your life, testing yourself with things that are hard that you cannot believe that you can do and then going for it. So come around April, so around this time last year, I went to a couple of cold water swimming camps and I was helping the English Channel aspirants with their nutrition and I couldn't get in the water. It was 14 degrees and I was like, you know what, you used to be tough. You really, you need to like have a think about this a little bit. And Wyatt said to me, listen, we've got this guy coming over from Ireland. He's trying to do the ice seven. So seven ice swims in each, like a swim in each continent. And it'd be a great time for you to have a go. And I was on the board of the of Dietitians Australia. We had a board meeting the same, you know, the day before this swim was going to happen. And I believe in synchronicity. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to give it a go. I had about six weeks to train, broke it down. And yeah, it it's to this, to the day, it's been the hardest thing I've done, but it also is the single thing that, has changed my mindset the most. So you had six weeks and you live in Cairns. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> Anyone's like, oh, six weeks. I'm <laughs> I mean, you, had, you obviously had a huge <laughs> amount of other training and experience in, in pretty hard stuff uh, under your belt. Yeah. But you live in Cairns. How do you prepare for that in Cairns? Yeah, so I break everything I do, I break down and I broke it down. I needed to swim fast. The longer you're in ice water, the more likelihood it is that you'll die. Um, so, you know, I needed to swim faster. And so I broke it down to how can I get to do a K or, and at this stage when I went down, I was only thinking that I would do the K first because you have to do a kilometer to, um, to qualify and then you can do the mile. So I was like, how fast can I get to do a K? So I went to some of the adult swimming squads and I couldn't really get quicker. So then I found a local squad um, with Kirk at St. Swimming Club, which is funny because it was a club I swam with when I was a little girl. And I was like, listen, I need to do, I want to do an ice swim and your job is to get me fast over a mile. And so I swam, I had to swim fast and then I had to get used to cold water. And so I bought a couple of freezers. So chest freezers. I had one that was, around 300 litres that I used to set at about zero degrees and one that was at, um, that was a bigger one that I could lay down in that I would set at two degrees. But I worked my way down to that. And, you know, if you think about that in comparison, if we're doing an ice bath for an athlete, you're looking at about 12 degrees. So it's pretty, pretty cold. Yeah, that's that's like literally putting yourself in the freezer. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> what what was the so you're down there, you've done the training, you're about to dive in. What was going through your mind at that time? It was the first time like I've done a lot of hard things, but it was the first time that I thought that, you know, oh, maybe this is a little bit harder than something I can do. Um and what I had to do is trust. And one of the things through the process of 
you know, one of the things that I've been very good at is really looking after myself and really thinking that I can help myself do everything. And one of the things with some of these adventure sports is that you have to learn to trust that someone else can look after your needs as well. So I had three of my best friends down there, Kate, Brendan and Shannon. And these people I trusted with my life. And I knew if anything went wrong that they would help me. But the reality of it came the night before we swam and we sat down with Wyatt and Wyatt, there was two of us swimming, Ben, a young fellow from Canberra and myself. And we went through all of the things that, you know, could happen. And, you know, it's one of the things when you start hearing about it, my friends, you know, Brendan is like, you're a cockroach, you'll be fine. Nothing will kill you. And we're really talkative. So the four of us really talkative. And then on the way home from the briefing, it was complete silence because of the reality hit. It was like, whoa. And we were talking to people and they were saying, you know, Jerk, who had swum six ice miles, was like, I've never really seen anyone train for it in a month. And I've definitely never seen anyone do in a month, then turn around and do a kilometre and then an ice mile the next day. So we were questioning, like, maybe we're a bit more bravo than brains here. And it was, it was scary. I was really, really scared. And I had a lot of phone calls from people, you know, well-meaning people, but well-meaning people telling me that I was going to die probably wasn't that helpful <laughs> the day before you're going to go and die. <laughs> what do you do with that, right? <laughs> we, just, we had to turn your phone off. You had to turn your phone off and focus. What was the physical experience like? So you're in the water, you're going through the, the swim. What was that it's, like? Um, it's not an experience that you would wish upon someone that you didn't like. Um, when you're out, it's invigorating. But when you go in, there's certain stages in your body and there's certain stages that happen. So if the ice kilometre, the water was 2.6, we were expecting the water to be about five, like because an ice swim is anything under five. And that made me really, really nervous. But when we first got in, like it really takes your breath away. And there's a couple of videos of me doing it online. And I just had to go back in, regroup and remember being in the freezer. So I did. And I rolled on my back and I thought, okay, this is, this is okay. I've got this. I've got this. I've been in water that's less than two degrees before. I can close my eyes. But you're not ready for certain things. You're not ready for... So the first few laps were okay. The whole time I was like, this is crazy. What are you doing? You need to stop. Brendan was paddling next to me and he was like, you've got this, you've got this. That kept me going. But, you know, at around, you know, 500 metres, my face goes numb and that's a really weird feeling. Then your lips go numb and it's like, whoa. But I kind of, I'd heard about this from Wyatt. So I was like, okay, that's okay. But at about 800 metres, my whole mouth and face went numb. And the difficulty there was is understanding and I could still feel my lungs, which is different to the mile the next day, but I could still feel myself breathing, but then you'd open your mouth and you can't work out whether your mouth is open or closed. So you're trying to breathe, but not get that happening at that time. But you basically feel like your whole body is burnt. Your feet go numb first and then obviously your hands, then your face. And then it kind of just works up your, your body. So in the kilometer that really happened at about 800 meters, and I got through to the kilometre and I was so proud of myself because I thought, this is cool. This is the first, you know, first Australian woman to do an ice kilometre. I'm happy with that. I'm content. I'm never, ever doing that again. There's no bloody way in hell I'm doing the mile. <laughs> and I got out and it takes about half an hour to get warm. So you get warm 
and still it really does a number on your body. Like it really, really, it's like I've run marathons and I've swum the English channel, but after that ice kilometer, I felt exhausted. And so then what changed to go from the kilometer? I don't need to do the mile tomorrow. Like I'm good. I had the experience. I've ticked it off. I could do this (laughs) in Antarctica. I can get that photo one day. Yeah. So, well, the thing is you can't go to Antarctica. Part of the thing about going to Antarctica is you need to have swum a mile, but in under five before you can go to the zero. So I hadn't got that hurdle, but you know, Ben was, Ben was fast. He was super fast and I'm relatively quick. He's super fast. And he was like, he's only 21. And he was like, I think we can do the mile. Like they're telling us that we can't, but I think we can do the mile. You know, I really think we can, and you're not going to let me do it by myself. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to let you do it by yourself. And then we started to talk about it. We spoke to Ram, who is the um, president of the International Ice Swimming Association in South Africa. And he was like, you know, you're not going to, you, you shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to give you permission because you're meant to do like an ECG in between. And I apologize to all the people who are in risk management and things like that, because from here on, it gets a bit kind of scary. So Ram was like, I don't really think that you'll be able to do it, but there's nothing going to hurt you from trying. And I don't think you should do it, but I'm going to sign it off and allow you to do it. So he signed it off, allowed us to put that qualifier in. We had to put our qualifier in online and then do do the mile. But kind of the thing that changed in my mind was that it didn't matter if I didn't make the mile. So one of the things that when I set a big goal, I'm quite happy to tell people about that goal that I'm trying to do, but I'm also quite happy to fail. I'm happy that if I don't make it, like obviously I didn't want to die, but I knew that I could do a kilometre. So if I could get to the kilometre and then pull out, you know, what? who cares? At least I gave it a go. So that's kind of what changed. And then Wyatt said one thing to me that really went, yeah, he's right. He said, you're quick. You might only be 29 minutes. You're not going to die in 29 minutes. (laughs) I don't think that that was necessarily true, but that's what I took on. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to give it a go. And that obviously became the thing that spurred you on. Are you wearing anything that's that's like watching any of your vital organs or anything like that? Or is it really no, just... No, it's a dangerous sport. Yeah, it, like I think one thing that's really important to understand here is this is not something that you should try at home. And the reason that I did try well, you shouldn't try it at home, um, but definitely you need to have people watching you. Um, we had Wyatt who was very, very experienced and he, you know, we've got all of these protocols. So it's not just we're doing a cowboy swim. It, we were doing some crazy stuff. We were looking at where we could go for it, where we could actually do this because there's not a lot of super cold water. We're at Threadbow. But he, you know, Wyatt was really clear around all of the safety mechanisms that we had in place. Having someone like Gurr who had come over from Ireland, who'd done so many ice swims, who understood what was normal and not normal was really, really good for me. Like it just gave me that allowance that when he did his ice mile, because he did it the same day we did our ice kilometre, he stopped after three, um, three laps and he's like, oh, this is hard in his Irish accent. And I was like, what do you mean? You're a hero. You are not supposed to find this hard. And, um, but that really, so they, they really worked it out. Um, on the morning of our ice mile, we arrived at the, the, um, 
Threadbow Lake where we did our ice kilometer and it was completely frozen over. So we couldn't actually swim, obviously. We couldn't swim there. We waited for a little while and then Ben said, well, it's unprecedentedly cold. Maybe this other lake, like Krakenback, we could swim there. And so we went there. It was 4.2 degrees. So we were like, yes, it's under five. And that's all we, but we had to get in quickly. I had to, obviously two of us were doing it. So I had to get in to do mine. Ben had to get in to do his, but we had very short lengths. So it was 57 meters, which meant that someone could walk along the shore with you the whole way, um, jump in and get you out. But you can't just have anyone. You have to have someone who's cold acclimatized to ju jump in. Cause most people, as soon as they jump into cold water, they go into shock. So we all each had a turn with a different swimmer. Um, well, as in I had a turn, um, White had a turn, Gurr had a turn. And then we did those 57 metre kind of turns, laps. What was it like when, you, when you'd finished, when you got to the end? Well, I never really, throughout my ice mile, I never really thought that I would make it to the end. Um, I always kept thinking as I was swimming, I was going to stop. And I can't really, I remember the turn from, you remember key points, but you do kind of black out throughout it. And, and, you know, as I talk about it, it sounds people are going to think I'm crazy, but you don't really remember it. And from about lap four, cause you have a counter, I was thinking there's no way I'm going to finish this at lap eight. I remember Wyatt saying to me, so there was like two laps of 16 of these circles. Wyatt was like, you're halfway there. And in my head, I was like, what are you talking about, Wyatt? There's no way I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish in a couple of laps and then I'll be completely done. And he, you know, and I just didn't, didn't think about it from that. At about, you know, a kilometre, no, it would have been longer than that, 1.3 metres. So I had about 300 metres left. And what part of my training was doing breathing exercises. So practising holding my breath, practising meditation. And one thing that I knew that I could hold my breath for four minutes so I knew that I had about, sorry, five minutes. So I knew that I had about, you know, two to 300 meters left. And that's when I couldn't feel like I, you know, I was used to from the kilometer, my face going numb, my mouth going numb. But the thing that happened in the ice swim that really changed was something I'd never felt before. And I never want to experience again was basically my lungs shutting down. And I couldn't work out whether I was breathing in or I couldn't work out whether I was breathing out, but I knew I was breathing because I could hear myself breathing. Like I was, because <gasps> <laughs> like, you sounded like a walrus. And I'm like, at least I knew I was breathing. And so when I finished, I, it was one of those things that, you know, it was a hard thing that I got through that I never ever would have thought that I could have. And that makes you understand that, Physically, mentally, emotionally, if you can get through something like that, you can get through lots of other things in life as well. Starts to put other things into perspective, I'm sure. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm very glad I didn't die in the freezer. I'm very glad I didn't die in like cracking back. Um, and I'm very glad that I got to experience that and allowing, you know, learning to trust other people and learning to um, set my mind on something that I, I did to see where my limits were and that's something that you've certainly done in in a range of different settings swimming's always been a part of your life uh from Ironman events um long distance swimming you've you and you mentioned before about having swum the English Channel you've also done a range of other swims uh Rottnest Channel um 
you know, Palm Beach to, to Manly amongst a whole range of other ones. What is it about long distance swimming that um, has attracted you to that? So before I became okay at meditating, one of the things was that sport was my meditation. So I grew up as an, as identifying as a person, as an athlete. I was in Nutrigrain series for Ironman and, you know, I always thought that I'd become an athlete. And now at the time when I was young, I didn't make it. I was a fringe athlete. So I was good, but I wasn't good enough to make that my career. And to be honest, I'm really happy that I didn't make it because it's meant that I've been able to do so many other things with my life. And I always now see that. I see crisis, I see chaos, I see bad things that happen as potentially a blessing. And yeah, I have done lots of things. And and to me, the sport is that form of meditation of slowing down. If you're doing endurance swimming, it's around that slowing down. I love swimming and running in the dark because it just, you know, allows my senses to focus on, you know, one breath at a time and it's calming. Do you have a favourite moment in any of those swims that you've done? The moment that, uh, I don't know, that comes to mind that you go, man, I didn't, it was a surprise that that is what would have come out of an experience like that. There's lots of things you learn about yourself when you train for something. And I think that's really important when you feel stuck and you feel um, like you need to stretch your comfort zone and you feel like you need to do something different. You learn things about yourself. You learn about where, how tough you are. You learn about, you learn to question certain things rather than take them for granted. And you learn to apply advice from people. Like I always get advice from the best people I can, but then I critically evaluate that advice and I ask questions and decide you know so it allows you to to know yourself a lot better how important is it for you to have the next challenge on your horizon are you one of those people that needs to have that next thing or is it more just that those there's opportunities that come up no when people look at things that I've done often people misinterpret and say that I'm really driven or say that I'm a type a personality or all of these things and it's actually not true it's I've become bored and I allow myself to look not not so much even bored but I allow myself the freedom to explore interests that may not be related and I don't always I'm not the person that has to do a marathon and then I've got something else on but I do like to combine things like I like to travel for marathons or swims and combine that with travel or combine that with the great people that you meet during these events but I I don't always need something motivating me to keep going I keep going despite motivation you currently um, are still obviously pretty involved in that long distance swimming uh, community if I can call it that (laughs) Um, supporting you know other swimmers and and uh, other people in that area can you tell me a little bit about what that community is like Yeah, it's, you know, it's a community when you're learning to, when you're looking at open water swimming, I think the cool thing about open water swimming that I love so much is that whether it's ice swimming or long distance or even the short stuff is that it's non-discriminatory. Like you can swim if you're old or young, whether you're tall or short, whether you're thin or whether you're large, like it, it just, it allows people to, it allows ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And, you know, we've got swimmers, my friend Trent Grimsey is a world record holder at six hours, 55. And then I've had clients who for English Channel 
And then I've got clients who've swum 18 hours and they're still rec both recognized as equal champions. And I think that's something you're not doing it in these adventure swims as a race. And some people are to be fair. And you know, that's, that's good on them, but many people are doing it to test their own thoughts and to question what they can achieve and to actually try and do something that's bigger than themselves. So, you know, we help through my business, Sofa's Nutrition and SportsDietitian.com. We do at least 30 English channel or like channels per year. And there's always, always someone who's looking to do something bigger. And it's working out how can we help them and also how can we help them help themselves. So it's a great little community Um but there are like, when you think, oh, well, I'm a bit crazy. You start talking to people and you're like, they're a bit more crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about the people you hang around. Isn't it? It's all relative. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> as, a, as a dietitian, you've worked in a whole range of different areas, even in, in that field. Um, what, what is the thing that's most misunderstood by your, your field of work, by being a dietitian, do you think, in the community? We tend to look at this world with a sense of, mo not we as in dietitians, but many people tend to look at this world with a sense of realism. And what that means is, is that there's a black and white answer. And we tend to follow or, or society tends to follow gurus that have the answer that most closely aligns with their bias. So I think that is something that happens. But I think what is, you know, a truth for me is that we really should be looking at this world with a sense of relativism. So what is the answer for me, for this community or for this person right now? And when you start to look at science and this is, you know, this is a misunderstanding, I think not just from a, from a consumer point of view, but understanding of what, what can we actually believe? And people think that they don't have a bias and in itself that's bias. And I think actually looking at things and questioning things and working out what is right for me right now and why am I thinking that this is right when it actually could be wrong. And I think that is really important. And I think when you start to look at the evidence base and you look at the evidence base, what you can see is if they've done a study of say a thousand people, there's a group in the middle that they count, you know, that looks you know, tells you what the answer is. But in all of those studies, even if most people have had X result, there's always some hyper responders. So always some people who get better than predicted results. And these people become the advocates and these people start telling people, this is the only way that you can be healthy or the only way that you can cure your disease or the only way that you can, you know, live your best life. But then you have an equal number of people on the other end of the normal curve that are non-responders and these, and or sometimes even negative responders. So they don't care if the evidence tells us that, you know, everyone should be eating this way. What they care about is I tried to eat that way and it actually was negative for me. So one thing that we do as dietitians and what I do in dietitians and what we do within our business is we focus on that behavior and we focus on looking at what is right for this person right now in the context that they, they're living in, in the lifestyle that they're living in, meeting the goals that they want to achieve. And then we start to get better results. And we can only do that by asking questions and getting people to question their rightness.
Do you find that people are willing to jump into those questions? I And I ask that because um, I think when it comes to, and I'm going to use the word diets, when it comes to food, <laughs> people often just go, tell me what to eat. And there yeah. is, you look in enough places and people will tell you, this is what I have for the morning. This is what I have, you know, whether it's six meals a day, whether it's fasting, whether it's just give me the plan and I'll follow it. And so it can almost feel like I'm not allowed to ask questions or get curious or try different experiments because I just need to follow what Sally down the road did and it worked for her. So that's what I should do. Do you find some of that resistance is, you know, encouraging people just to ask questions themselves is hard or straightforward? I think people are not used to asking questions. I think we are in this society where, and this is in leadership, this is in business and this is in nutrition. Um, This is where people are, they want the right answer, but sometimes there is no right answer, but sometimes the right answer for them is different. So I have a condition called Ehlers-Danlos. So the right answer for me when I'm training for some of these athletic performances is that I can't physically do as much training as other people can. So I need to look at the areas where I can, you know, push that up. Otherwise, I'm going to get injured. I'm going to have another surgery. It's not great. But I think people don't question enough. And the trouble with our information sources is that we're able to curate those incredibly associated with our biases these days. And so it means that people don't ask questions. And sometimes the other thing is not that people don't ask questions because they have the questions in their head but people become a little bit um, offended if you ask a question rather than just seeing it as it is, as a question, not as a um, attack, I think is really important. So rather than take it as a personal, you're having a crack at me. Yeah. And as soon as, because sometimes, you know, I, and I am a, I ask questions is my thing. I always get in trouble and I always, you know, you can find holes in what people are saying and that's not my intention. It's literally to understand a concept or understand something a little bit better and to understand whether is this coming from an aspirational point of view or an experiential point of view. So is this something that they're like, well, I did really well, but I just fluked it because I didn't do everything that you're supposed to do. But then when they preach about it, they say all the things that, you know, well, I did this and I did this and I did this and it's unsustainable for most human beings to do that, where in fact, they didn't actually do that. So I asked questions about, you know, well, how did you do that? Why did you do that? And I think you do get to the stage where people, they don't like you asking questions, but that's just because they're not used to it. And I think even by using some techniques like priming, so saying, I'm going to ask you a question and it's not having a go at you, it's just to understand a bit more or it's not because I think you're wrong. I just want to understand a bit more deeply how that applies to you and how it could potentially apply to me. That can be helpful when asking questions as well. But learning how to ask and learning how to receive questions, I think, is a skill that we're not practicing enough. You mentioned before, um, you know, your condition that that you need to look at things differently. Where has asking questions about even the way that you train, the way that you eat, the way that you do things, where has that been helpful for you on a personal level? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is around understanding how much potentially, and anyone with a, you know, this, it is like, I do classify it as, you know, I do identify as having a disability and with any disabilities, people have to work out, well, where 
what is their availability? So one of the things for me is availability of time. Particularly when I was younger, I had to sleep a lot more than my peers. I would be, like, I can't remember a day where I haven't really been in pain. And I think part of that, you know, by being in pain a lot, that kind of gives you the new normal. And that helps you with some of these more weird kind of sports, I suppose, because where other people get pain, you're used to that pain. Um, but it allows me to, to ask those questions and then work out my life around that. So when I worked, I started my first business when I was 22 and I would, you know, have lots of breaks and I would, you know, have a nap in the middle of the day, all of those types of things that I couldn't do if I lived a so-called normal life. But I ask questions and often those questions are not always to the information provider, but they're questions to myself about is why, why am I really drawn to that? Is that related to some type of ego? Is that related to, you know, what I want other people to see, or actually is this the best thing for me? And that kind of just allows me to balance my life and go, well, and the other thing is what am I going to sacrifice? And is the sacrifice worth that? So I ask those questions all the time for myself and encourage people to do that as well. The power of those kind of questions. Where does some of that curiosity for you personally come from, do you think? I think I've always been curious. It probably doesn't help that I've got, you know, I was collecting degrees like postage stamps through my 20s. But I, I think part of it comes from the fact that when I was in a face-to-face clinic, with dietitians, I would, you know, you go through this stage and, you know, I've done my psychology qualifications as well. And sometimes the things that I'd learned were not actually achieving outcomes in my clients. So then I'd question, why is this not working? And I used to have lots of clients. So I used to see, you know, 150 people a week and I was super busy, too busy. (laughs) If anyone's thinking about doing that, I wouldn't recommend that either. But you see a number of people a week and then you start going, well, what are the patterns here and where are the patterns related? And then when you start looking at scientific literature, when you actually look at the data and you understand that even though this works for 99% of people, if there's 1% it doesn't work for, if you're actually consulting that 1%, they don't care that it works for the 99%. They want something associated, they want advice associated and aligned with them at that 1%. So you start to see holes like when you start to, when you get more experience and the same thing with leadership and the same thing with business. Every time, every time you have a rule and you believe a rule, you find an exception to the rule. And for me, it's working out, is this person aligned with the rule or are they an exception to the rule? And if they're an exception to the rule, I need to change the rule a little bit to help them achieve what they want to achieve. I think that, you know, kind of hits a nail on the head, as you say, in a whole range of different areas, whilst we might know the norm, whilst we might know the majority, to actually come into a context or a circumstance and, and come at it with fresh eyes and say, well, what's going on here is, um, is yeah, is really, really key. You mentioned before about getting uh, degrees like postage, postage stamps <laughs> and your list of uh, education. You got a couple of master's degrees, a few grad dips, as you say, psychology education. Um, uh, you've also done your company director's uh, course, which I understand. I was going to ask you whether you get bored easily, but you've already answered that, <laughs> that question. What is it that draws you to education? 
I just love learning. And I think, you know, I grew up and I didn't love learning that much because in my life I was going to become an athlete. So I hadn't read like a full book. Even when I was at school, I used to read like the first chapter and then I'd read a few things in the middle, try and find the patterns and then the last few pages and then write my book report and things like that. My first degree, I didn't read that much. And because again, I was going to be an athlete, I didn't need to read. And then I had a mentor when I was 24 that said to me, and I'd had my business for a couple of years. And I said, I'd really like to write a book. And he said, the only way you can write a book is actually if you read books. And I was like, okay. And he said, and it's amazing when you look at someone's book, usually it's, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of their knowledge synthesized that you can read in a week. And he said that, you know, I challenge you to read a book a week. And so I took on that challenge. And not only did I take on that challenge, that allowed me to think a little bit differently. And because I would, you know, try and channel the energy and channel the person that I was reading as if they were in the room mentoring me live. And then I would apply that knowledge. And even when I did my MBA, a lot of people were saying, you know, if you've got a small business, doing an MBA is a waste of time. It's only important if you're managing a big team. But to me, I went in there and I, you know, I did the finance subject and then I applied all of that knowledge to finance. I did the HR subject and I applied all that knowledge to the HR, did the marketing, applied that. So it's not just about the consumption of learning and it's about increasing your capacity to learn. So I taught myself how to whole brain read or photo read. And that meant that I can read relatively quickly. And I just find how other people see the world as fascinating. And the more um, data and more information I can have, it allows me to decide, well, how, how do I want to live my life? How do I want to be as a leader? How do I want to be as a mum? And how can I learn from other people? Because there's absolutely no way that I can have the capacity to know everything. You mentioned um, you, you've been in business and you've had a variety of different businesses. Obviously, we're, we're currently sitting in a global pandemic environment where there's not, I don't believe, a single workplace that hasn't been impacted by some way, shape or form. As a business owner, how are you turning up to some of the changes and the impacts for you? I think one of the things that I've been doing a lot more is reflecting, reflecting again on those biases or those truths that I thought were true that may not actually be true, the things I thought I needed to do that maybe I don't need to do. Um, but one of the things that I always talk, because say with my English channel swimmers and with any swimmers, when you're a new swimmer, you tend to try and swim against the ocean. But what we learn growing up swimming in the ocean as kids is you can't swim against the ocean. You need to swim with the ocean. So looking at where the ocean or where the crisis is taking you and trying to see where that is going, I think, it, and I think that's what we're doing. The, the difficulty for me that doesn't allow me to answer on behalf of everyone is that I do feel calm in uncertainty. I do love flexibility. I dislike stability. I do love change and I do, I just thrive in uncertainty. And that's because I don't really care about outcomes, even though, and people say that, you know, wow, but you've achieved so much, but I don't rest on the outcomes. I rest on the growth through the progress. And I always see that, you know, if, and as a speaker, you know, it's always like, well, if something negative comes out of this, well, that 
you know, that can be a story. <laughs> um, and I do really believe in that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. So sometimes, you know, looking at the crisis, looking at the hardness and going, this sucks, but it's an opportunity for me to practice my leadership skills or it's an opportunity for me to learn my technology. I think one thing that's been misunderstood in a lot of things that I'm seeing online is that people tend to think that everyone has more time. And that's not true for me. You know, I'm a, a co-parent. I'm, so when I have my daughter, I have a lot less time. Um, and we, the people that we work with are in crisis. So we have more work that we need to do to help people overcome, you know, what they're feeling. And then being okay with everything that you're doing. Like, I think that we're always the first to be really hard on ourselves or worry about what other people think rather than just going with the ocean and just going, I feel like shit. I'm not going to do stuff today or I feel awesome. I'm going to do everything and just allowing you to feel all the feels and, but just keep going even if you don't have the motivation. I'm hearing you on the whole more time pace, <laughs> you know, people going, oh, we can, I'm going to watch more Netflix. I'm like, oh, I don't even know where that's going to fit in. <laughs> like, how are all these people baking? <laughs> Bring me some cookies. <laughs> what's exciting you about what's next for you? Oh, I, as I said before, the whole world is exciting to me. Um, one of the things that we're working on now is trying to incorporate some of that behavioral nutrition and um, incorporate what we know achieves outcomes into our startup, into Sophus Nutrition. So we've got some really cool corporate offerings that we're doing at the moment and we've got some amazing people that are working in our team. I think it's it's just a blessing if you're a leader and you have amazing people that come to work every day loving what they do but also pushing themselves to be better and I think that's something that I'm you know makes my heart sing every day seeing people really working hard for the business but also hard for themselves to become better people better versions of themselves you know I'm, I feel very blessed in that way. I want to wrap with a final question the name of this podcast is called Standout Life when you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think there's two parts of standout life. I think there's one of standing out and being different, but then the other side is just standing up. So standing up to who you are and allowing that to be seen, whether that is even, you know, if you're an ordinary person doing extraordinary things, that's standing up. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be, bold I think that's the name of it but by being you can be big and bold it doesn't have to just be external it can be internal as well I, I couldn't agree more I think it's not about notoriety or being donated but it's just about and I love this sense of um, when you mentioned people that have swum the English channels everyone from your your record breakers to to fairly ordinary people uh, doing what's true for them Tara it's been such a delight to chat with you thank you so much for your time thank you Ellie